Isaiah 47 this evening, warped spiritual knowledge. Verse 10 says, your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. (laughs) That's God speaking to Babylon. When spiritual knowledge is bent all out of shape or warped, then everything is out of rhythm with God's truth. And what warped them? What caused them to be so uh, bent out of shape? Sorcery was high up on that list. Idolatry, of course, goes with that. And the outcome was arrogance. And there are a lot of moving parts to those three things, which we'll cover this evening. Last chapter, the pronounce, God pronounced uh, the doom coming towards Babylon, which at this time, again, another reminder, at this time in history, Babylon was not the world power. Assyria still was. In this chapter, the doom is detailed by the prophet. It was a kingdom of the occult. Babylon was. I'll hit that at the end of the study a little bit more. Spiritual wickedness in high places was everywhere. It became part of society. For the Jews, of course, uh, they're just moving along as a people in the wrong direction in spite of all that God tried to do for them, sending the prophets, always a remnant with them. There are five distinct periods for the Jews coming out of Egypt. And these little things that, uh, you know, when when a pastor brings these things up, they're not filler. They're important things. They have to do with how we go about business serving Jesus. We look at the Jews, we try to learn from them. God got them out of Egypt. That was the, the period of the camp for them. It was the camp, it was the commonwealth, and after that, the crown. And then after the crown came the captivity, and then they came back to Israel. The C, the letter C is the alliteration there. But at the camp, the time that they spent with Moses, you think you would think having Moses as your king, as he essentially was, that, and he was more than a king, uh, you would think that great man of God would have just had so much more success with that first generation. But, of course, they died in the wilderness, almost all of them. That second generation, however, which shuts up that silly teaching of generational curses, because if there was a such thing as a generational curse, the second generation would have never made it into the promised land. But they did make it into the promised land, and they did well in the beginning. That was the commonwealth period of the Jews. There was no king. They were tribal leaders. And then they wanted a king, and they got one, the period of the crown, which led to their captivity and their return. Those last three, the crown, the captivity, and their return to Jerusalem, is the time of the writing prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. And so there you have 17 writings and 16 men doing it, because Jeremiah wrote two of them. What is happening here, Isaiah being the largest of the prophets who wrote to the people, he's, he's telling the future. Should have been a very big boost for those Jews who then had to live through this junk in the days of Jeremiah. Well, looking at verse 1 of Isaiah 47, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. Well, you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Well, Babylon is personified 
as a delicate, uh, well-cared-for maiden, woman. And uh, a virgin in the sense that she had never been before captured. Uh, that generation of the Babylonians in the days of Jeremiah. She had seen some hard times before that, but when, <clears throat> after Nebuchadnezzar, once Nebuchadnezzar comes along, Babylon turns into this quite impressive kingdom, this empire. And it's to that generation that Isaiah is, is talking to. And he's saying, this is all going to change because judgment's going to fall on you. And that is the Babylonian Empire. But behind the Bible's personifications, metaphors, illustrations, parables, visions, symbols, behind all of that, there's always a greater reality. Not just the symbol. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. Because there's greater things. The, the Wearing a cross is an ornament. Well, the cross... The Christian cross, there are greater things behind that symbol. Like the salvation of sinners, for example. It's pretty, you can't get bigger, there's nothing greater for an individual than their salvation. Therefore, the value of the symbols, the personifications, these things are useful. Sometimes they're vital. And so personifying Babylon as this maiden is a big thing. It should have been a big thing for the Jews at that time and it should have been a big thing for the Babylonians because the Babylonians were aware of the prophecies. I'll get to that too. Oh, you too now. Hosea wrote, I have, God speaking through him, I have spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. We know that's God speaking because Isaiah is, I mean, Hosea is not giving symbols, it's God giving them. That God uses these symbols, but because in back of them is a greater truth. And they come with, a, for me to know, for you to find out, and I won't make it that hard for you to find out if you apply yourself. So again, the literal is revealed by the symbolic, and the literal is greater. John chapter 16, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Well, God, again, does not only speak with just straight language, you know, he also uses these methods, parables, parabolic illustrations, things like that. A sower went to sow, and he tells the story. You know, a woman needed bread, and there's a parabolic illustration there. Revelation 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And John goes on to say, to show his servants things which much, must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Well, we are those servants. And he has shown us things through the symbols, through the illustrations, the metaphors. That we do something with these things. All the time, the goal is to build our faith up more. Trust God no matter what. Because we need that. So God tells future Babylon which again at this time was not a dominant kingdom, uh, that uh, they are going to be like this virgin daughter. But she's going to experience a radical and rude change. And the prophets referred to cities in danger of judgment as virgin daughters. Isaiah did it in chapter 23, and there he referred to Sidon 
as a virgin daughter. And he said, you will rejoice no more, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus, and there also you will have no rest. And so the language that the people of that day would appreciate, but what would they do with it? This imagery underlines the vulnerability and the absolute helplessness of Babylon when judgment falls. Which Nebuchadnezzar, he being so proud, you know, he didn't ever think this was going to happen to Babylon. He dodged it. We'll cover that too. That's three. I don't remember what they are, but he's one of them. (laughs) Babylon, that empire, was extraordinarily wealthy because of her conquest, you know, the riches that she would take from those that she conquered. And there in the Fertile Crescent, so many of those kingdoms, you know, the... She now possessed those fertile lands. And to, to, at this, by the time Jeremiah comes along, Babylon really has nothing to worry about on a human level. But God wasn't, um, he wasn't playing around when he sent these prophecies out. So what we're going to get, of course, in Scripture, in this evening section, is not only fulfilled prophecy to us, but future prophecy. That's four now that I owe you. Verse 2. Take the millstones and grind meal, remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover your thigh, pass through the rivers. And so now this mistress of the palace, and sticking with the metaphor, is going to be turned into a servant doing menial work. Babylon is going to be stripped down. She's not going to be this great Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar boasted of. You'll be a prisoner and compelled to do things that a slave would do. And that is exactly what happened to Babylon as a kingdom, as a a people. And behind all of this, I'm eager to get to that part, we're not there yet, Uh, this Chaldean influence, that Chaldea became synonymous with Babylon. Verse 3, your nakedness shall uncover, be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. So verse 3, taking it from the end of the verse, God says, I'm not debating this. This is how it's going to be. This is a, a, a decree of God. Personifying the city, again, as exposed and humiliated and abused. And of course, when Cyrus, when he did take down Babylon... He did it almost effortlessly. Um, There were people, Babylon was such a big city, that it went days before people realized it was a change in regime, a regime change. No longer were the Babylonians in charge, but now the Persians were in charge. Babylon was now part of the Persian Empire. And uh, all of this came true in waves because it took centuries for Babylon to finally be erased off the map the days of Alexander, and when Alexander died, and his kings divvied up the, the, the kingdom of Alexander, uh, in time Babylon was completely uh, just erased to centuries. Armies have walked over the remains of Babylon under, under the desert sands and not even aware that there once was a kingdom there. And so uh, there she is pictured as a slave, doing laundry, hauling water, uh, doing things that uh, she would never would have expected. And much of this imagery that we're getting in Isaiah 47 this evening, 
will show up in Revelation 18. So ancient Babylon that we're talking about is sort of the template for apocalyptic Babylon that Revelation talks about, that end-time kingdom that will have just this opulence, this wealth and power, and will be just as evil and influenced by spiritual, uh, uh, what do you call sinners, I guess, people in touch with Satan, not God. And that's what characterizes the Babylonians, and that will characterize Antichrist, and it will be global. And and never before has the world been global. Well, at the Tower of Babel, because everybody lived there, (laughs) and then they were dispersed after. But uh, that uh, geographically, the the mankind didn't populate the the planet like we do now. And we just saw this with the the COVID hoax when the medical science slash overlords had people on remote islands following the COVID restrictions. It just their reach was unlimited. People in Antarctica were affected, but everybody. So we're global now, just as the Bible said it would be, and never before has this happened. In verse 4, as for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of the Holy One of Israel. So the prophet is careful to explain that this is all Yahweh himself in control of everything. The Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, Yahweh of hosts. Israel's God is calling the shots. And Nebuchadnezzar found that out when he was driven mad. But now we've got time to stay on that word uh, Yahweh, the name, the covenant name of the Lord. Usually there's too many verses and you just can't stay, but tonight I'll take a little time on it. It's known now as a tetragrammaton, a word consisting of four letters. And it really... um, You don't really have to get it all, but you should understand some of it. And this tetragrammaton points to the covenant name of Israel's God. It has become a theonym. And it has quite a history going uh, involved with it. The original name is derived from the verb used to Moses, to be, to exist. The implication was the eternal, self-existent God. Who shall I say sent me? And God said, you tell him the one that is. It's hard to, you know, it's idiomatic. It's, but we get to, we can get there. by, Like I just said, it, the implication being the self-existent, eternal God. Exodus 3.14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's the covenant name there. It's been lost, it's pronunciation, but we'll, we'll get to that. And he said, thus shall... Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Tell my people that what, who we know as Yahweh, the great I am, is the one that is sending me to you. Now when Moses goes back and he writes information in Genesis, he uses this newly acquired name to identify just who is the God that created the heavens and the earth and everything in between. So uh, he, he, this name was not realized until... Uh, Exodus, uh, what we know as chapter 3, when God met Moses and he has this dialogue with him. It is the most important name for God in the Old Testament, and it appears about 6,800 times in the Old Testament. It shows up in the New Testament in its own form also. The Jewish scribes, however, 
In time, after the second temple was rebuilt, and that would be after the return from Babylonian captivity, in time they began to regard the name as too sacred to verbalize, too sacred to speak. Um, So they left out the vowels of the name, and you're just left with the consonants, which is that Yahweh that we're familiar with, the YH, WH. And uh, Moses and Aaron didn't think it was too sacred to pronounce. When, when Aaron's would, Moses told Aaron, God wants you to bless the people this way. Yahweh bless you. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. He's using the name, the covenant name. He's pronouncing the name. This was something rabbinical Judaism. Another thing they've given or taken away. Uh, have corrupted. Well-meaning, but wrong. And we Christians have to watch that we do not try to be more sacred than the scriptures. Because again, if I were a Jew and I knew the scriptures, I would like to think that I would say, hey, wait a minute, they can't be too sacred to pronounce. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, these guys, uh, uh, Isaiah, they were pronouncing the name and they were, you know, men of God. Well, anyway, uh, due to This increased sanctity attached to the name, uh, as I mentioned, we've lost its pronunciation. And in time, in the Dark Ages, and they truly were the Dark Ages, um, the Jews, when writing this four-character name, didn't want the reader to accidentally think the name or say the name, so they inserted vowels from the name Adonai, which is Lord. And so they had that, when you read it in their writings, it would be just the vowels and the consonants of these two words combined. Well, the Christians then misunderstood and began to pronounce the Adonai vowels with the consonants of the name Jehovah, which is not accurate. And all the scholars agree to that, and they suspect the proper pronunciation would be Yahweh, not Jehovah as the covenant name. Well, it really doesn't matter. The bottom line is that we know who is being spoken about, and we don't corrupt it any further. I I like this joke to illustrate. We know who the scripture is talking about when we come to these things. To a lot of things, we know. We have this spiritual intuition based on being trained from Scripture. And here's, there's the man that uh, would walk by a newsstand every day on his way to work. Now, for those of you who don't know what a newsstand is, a little booth on the sidewalk sells magazines and newspapers and candy and tobacco products, things like that. I miss them. They were very nice. Uh, anyway, uh, he walked by and this parrot, the man had a parrot there, and the, man, the parrot would see this man, and he would say, Mr., you're really dumb. Every day. At first, the man thought this was amusing, but then it began to irritate him. And he told the owner of the newsstand, your parrot is insulting me every time I come back, calling me dumb every single time. And the man said, don't worry about it, I'll fix this. He'll never do that again. The next day, he's walking by the newsstand, and the parrot makes eye contact with him, and the parrot says, you know what? (laughs) 
We can know things. It doesn't have to always be explicitly stated. We're smart enough, and God knows that. And so when we come to the covenant name of God, we have Jesus. We know his name. We know by the facts presented that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. We've been going over that repeatedly. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. We've been reading there is no other God. There is no other Savior. And the New Testament picks that up and applies it to Christ and says that Yahweh was born of a virgin, humili- uh, humbled himself, allowed humiliation, but he humbled himself and he came as a human being. 100% human in the flesh, 100% God in essence. He never stopped being divine. He yielded his sovereignty uh, for, for a while. So when he says, I could call 12 legions, he was withholding that sovereignty. He still could do it. Fortunately for them, he wasn't a show-off. Well, he says here in verse 5, so now if you understand, when we come to the all caps of the name Lord in the Old Testament reading, it's Yahweh, that covenant name. some, Some Bibles will italicize the word Lord to let you know that this is the covenant name. And it's, um, it's very significant. It's not a little thing. It is God getting personal with his people. And so when Christ comes, he, he becomes very personal with people, such as the 12 apostles, Mary and Martha of Bethany. I mean, he loved to go there when he was in town. In fact, we don't read about him spending the night in Jerusalem, except, <laughs> except when he was 12. Uh, we read about him uh, staying out in Bethany. And when he was 12, you know, hey, where's Jesus? <laughs> Something's missing here. And uh, it, uh, three days later, they found him. It's a comical story, unless you're a parent and you see yourself in that story. It's terrifying. Verse 5, though, of Isaiah 47. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. Well, again, the analogy goes back to verse 1, still personifying Babylon as this delicate maiden. And uh, she lose all that. Verse 6, I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy on the elderly. You laid your yoke very heavily. So again, here's the prophet once again speaking of a future event as though it already passed. How do you get such assurance? This is imparted. Isaiah doesn't wake up and say, today I'm going to really try to be faithful. Uh, he may have done that, but it doesn't work too well if that's all you have. Uh, so uh, here, of course, uh, the Lord imparts this faith to the prophet. You might remember when the apostles said uh, that they, they wanted to increase the Lord, increase our faith. He really doesn't answer <laughs> answer them. You're waiting for Jesus to say, well, you do these three things, kid. And it really, he, he goes into an, another zone sort of, just continuing the upholding of righteousness and drawing close to God. Uh, That's how you build your faith. And it is a a battle. Back to this, verse 6, where he's talking about being um, Babylon. 
being an instrument of his judgment, God was angry with the people, Judah, of course, and all the judgments were, you're going to go into captivity for this, the temple's going to be wiped out. And uh, Assyria served the same purpose for the northern kingdom, which is already gone by this time. Uh, Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 10, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. So God is saying, I'm using Assyria. I'm allowing Assyria to conquer the northern kingdoms. He did not allow them to take Jerusalem, though he did allow them to wreak havoc in Judah. Well, Assyria became very arrogant in doing this. And even though the prophets of Israel served notice to the Assyrians that Yahweh was doing this, they didn't. They dismissed it. No, we're this and we're that. And of course, God says, I'm going to deal with you for that. And ironic to us, God is going to use future Babylon to judge Assyria. Things change. So, um, they were merciless, the Babylonians, to the elderly. They were violent, unnecessarily violent in their, with their brutality. And God says, I'm going to deal with you for that. And we would like to have seen God just put an end to it. When we read Sunday about... Uh, quoting Peter, that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. What could that possibly mean? It means that he could have just snuffed us all out and not provided salvation. But because he's long-suffering, he has this plan of salvation we know is the gospel. And it is uh, God having to put up with the wretchedness of a fallen uh, human race to achieve his goals. And he is long-suffering, and we're very grateful. The difference between long-suffering and patience is patience is you're putting up with things, and long-suffering, you're putting up with people. Unless you're driving, driving you're, you're, put, you're just suffering. So, so, I don't know why. It's coming in. This, why do people not pass the truck? Why do they just, I don't want to pass. Okay, I'm, I'm supposed to be preaching here. So, anyway... Coming back to this, I, I find if you wear, I don't remember what it's called, but you know the mustache and glasses? If you get those when you're driving and you look at people, they don't know who you are. They could come to the church and hear me preach and won't know it's me looking at them. All right, coming back to this. So, where are we? Uh, I mentioned to you, and I, this is one of them that I owed you, that the Babylonians, they knew that when it was their time to conquer Judah, that the prophets had long been preaching this. And this is a lesson here. This goes to show you, you can show someone from the Bible fulfilled prophecy and prophecy being fulfilled, and that does not mean they're going to say, oh, okay, now I'll become a Christian. And here's a biblical example of that. When Nebuchadnezzar uh, conquered Judah and took them out, as prisoners, Jeremiah was one of them. He had to suffer the humiliation of a prisoner of war. But ultimately, they're going to let him go because they knew he was not against Babylon. They knew of his prophecies. And so Jeremiah chapter 40 picks it up when he is being released. Uh, verse 2, And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, Yahweh your God has pronounced this doom on this place. That's Jerusalem and Judah. Now, Yahweh has brought it, 
and has done just as he said, because you people have sinned against Yahweh and not obeyed his voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. The unbelievers knew why Judah was being judged and that they were the instruments of judgment. There's no evidence that they were, you know, this great revival and the Babylonians were coming to Christ. Quite the contrary, the prophecy says because of their arrogance, God's going to deal with them too. And so Yahweh used Babylon to punish his people like he did Assyria. And yet uh, they went overboard in both cases and now they're going to pay for it. Verse 7, and you said, I shall be a lady forever. He's continuing his personification of Babylon. So that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. So you knew these things, and you didn't take them to heart. My prophets reached out to you, but you, what you did, is you rationalized. And what the Babylonians would do is, well, that's their God. They're finding this increasingly on uh, scholastic posts like Wikipedia with this now new, uh, this approach that this is what they believed and they're almost making it sound like it's mythological anyway the Babylonians of course that pattern of uh, he, Yahweh is the God of the Jews but he's not us uh, over us and uh, God is saying well that's not true and you know it and they just dismissed it Nebuchadnezzar he boasted of Babylon's beauty and God instantly dealt with him. But prior to that instant moment, he kept warning him. We picked that up in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. But I'm not going to read verse 25, but in verse 25 of Daniel 4, Daniel advised the king. He said, listen, this this dream you had, it's against you. And I wish it was for your enemies, but it's you. I advise you, do righteously. Don't abuse people. And uh, that was pretty much it. Well, the king goes about his business. And uh, now we pick it up, verse 30. Then king, the king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for, the honor and mad- for my honor and majesty? While the, words, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And, of course, he went insane. Which is one of the... The Bible says that some insanity is due to self-exaltation. To a, a, a high sense of pride that belittles others, exalts yourself, and steals from God all at the same time. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. And he went out of his mind, lost his mind. He was restored a long time later. Well, we come to the... New Testament, and we read about the fate of apocalyptic Babylon and times, Revelation 17, 5, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. Mystery Babylon. That means you got to, you have to add up the scripture verses to find out who's being who is Babylon in the end times? Who is apocalyptic Babylon? And in doing that, you find out, wow, there's, a, there's tentacles that belong to this, this uh, mother of all harlots. And why would she be called the mother of all harlots? Because Babylon is a cradle of idolatry. It is believed that is where the Tower of Babel was. 
where humanity uh, sort of just huddled together after the flood instead of uh, going out to the, all the earth until the Tower of Babel was built and the languages were split. Revelation 18.2, And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Well, nothing new there. Spiritually, that's who she was. And we're going, that's how they got the name the Chaldeans, the stargazers. Well, we come, well, the astrologers, the, the wandering ones, where they go into the spiritual realm, the paranormal. They were thought they prided themselves as being these superior sorcerers. Well, that, that's why they were out of rhythm with God. Verse 8, Therefore hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. So God is calling out their arrogance. They felt pretty smug. They, their, um, their words are the outcome of their attitudes. Arrogance, a major factoring in triggering their abusive behavior towards others. And this lined them up for judgment. And their religion is what helped their arrogance along. Uh, so they were acting in accordance to their demonic beliefs. And again, the world doesn't want to hear this. The world does not want to hear that false religions, man-made religions, that they are an abomination to God. And God tells us in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 4 that the world takes this so seriously that if you stand up against them, they might kill you, even if they're your brother. And that's what Cain did to Abel. Because the works of Abel were righteous and Cain's were not. Hebrews, where it says here in verse 8, who say in your heart, well, that is who they are. That is the seat of the will. That's really what's going on. You can have a person that's uh, under the influence of something and they want out. They're not, that's not who they are. But in this case, they were quite content with being who they were. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That is God reading the mind and the will and the, everything, the whole package, the heart. Uh, and he, this is why the pulpit is supposed to be a vehicle for God to counsel, to wash and regenerate through the word of God. Ephesians, Paul tells us, through the washing and the regeneration of the word of God. This is the counseling session, one of them. This is the main one. Uh, just in the scripture verses, in, in, in cross-referencing scriptures, a congregation will get so much by just hearing scripture. Uh, well, because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. He says here in verse 8, I, this is what they were saying, I am and there is no other besides me. Now, this is incomparability. Now, when God speaks of his incomparability, he is saying there are no other gods, they don't exist. And that's Isaiah 44 and, and just 45, we've read a lot of that. But Babylon, on the other hand, is not claiming to be the only city that exists. They're just saying, nobody can compare with us. We are superior. 
their nationalism had crept into arrogance. Assyria made a similar boast. Zephaniah picks it up. And I like these kind of cross-references because you just see that the prophets were on the ball. They were calling these things out. Um, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 15. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely and said in her heart, I am and there is none beside me. Same thing. Nobody can compare with Assyria. Nineveh is it. Well, the, the Babylonians, why didn't they pick up on the, what the Jewish prophets were saying? Because they were too, they were throat deep in their own mysticism. Continuing in verse 9, I shall not sit. This is what, again, personifying her, her uh, monologue. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. Well, arrogance is self-deceiving. And placing themselves above reality was common for them. But God sees the heart and he sees their sense of national superiority. It's one thing to, have, to be a patriot. It's another thing to think that everybody else is worthless. And this is what uh, was going on. It's, kind of, it's a practice even to this day. So judgment of both Babylon, ancient Babylon, and apocalyptic Babylon are a matter of fulfilled and future prophecy. That's the second one, I think, or third that I told you I was going to get to. You have ancient Babylon judged and gone. You have apocalyptic Babylon on the horizon of Antichrist, which is going to also be judged. Revelation 18.7, in the measure that she glorified herself, and lived luxuriously, pause there, he's talking about apocalyptic um, Babylon, but is that not the same behavior that was found in ancient Babylon? There's a dual application. He continues in Revelation 18.7, In the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Well, that's what ancient Babylon was saying. Now, of course, there's also the apostate uh, apocalyptic Babylon, which is the apostate church that survives. The, uh, that's not survives. They remain after the rapture. There will still be churches. They just won't be the churches that belong to Christ. They'll all be apostates. True churches will not be allowed to meet. Uh, the church will be gone. She has served her purpose. She's not making, you know, the last Gentile has been converted. And uh, there's no, no longer, no need for the church. And the rapture comes. Well, in, that vacuum will create this atmosphere of, uh, amongst other things, of continued apostasy. Who knows? Antichrists would probably say, you know, the Martians took them away. Uh, who, who knows? It won't matter. It's going to happen. That's the bottom line. You know what? So, <laughs> I, I know you read Revelation. You say, I don't understand all of it, but I know what? I know who wins at the end. And I know what team loses, and they lose badly. And I know I have a choice between those two teams. And I know which one I'm going on. So, yeah, I don't have to know every single verse and word of the Bible. All I have to do is know enough. To be able to say, I know what. Uh, don't we have that, especially here in the South? I'll tell you what. Uh, well, I'm going to get some more of that in a minute. But uh, verse 9. But these, <laughs> I never heard that in New York. 
until I joined the military. And then I got to mingle with Southerners. And that's where I heard, you know, I'll tell you what. And what? Because <laughs> I don't seem like they never told you what. Anyway, but these two things shall come to you in a moment. And one day, the loss of children and widowhood, they shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. Now we're getting to what warped, what warped them, their knowledge, just what happened here. So there is the triumph of justice. Yes, Lord, deal with them. But then there's the tragedy of the impenitent sinner, and that is the, the, the great judgment, uh, the great white throne judgment that no one wants, none of us want to be uh, standing before. The Bema seat, where we receive our rewards, or you just uh, we, we, we meet with the Lord. And then there's the great white throne judgment, which will be for those who rejected him. Anyway, in ancient cultures, religion and magic went hand in hand. Uh, when I think it was Charlemagne, when he became king, and he was one of the first kings to start reading. <laughs> the other kings were like, we don't read, we just eat meat and kill people. But Charlemagne, you know, he had a bigger vision, and he tried to wipe out the paganism and make everybody Christians. It didn't work well. Um, And the ones that were saying we're Christians, they continued with their folk religion, which was infested with magic and or at least what they thought was, you know, chants and stuff like that. Deuteronomy 18 forbids this stuff. Uh, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. Uh, That in those days, of course, was human sacrifice. Today you could call it uh, Planned Parenthood. What a slick name from hell, is that not? They're not planning any parenthood. They're killing, they're killing people. And the, those little unborn, those are humans. Uh, anyway, no, don't step on the eagle's egg. You'll go to jail. But you can go ahead and kill them anyway. We know, you. we know. And again, if, 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 if that was you before Christ, your God will forgive that at the snap of a finger when you come to him. That is gone. Uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Um, coming back to this, uh, who makes a son or daughter pass through the fire, who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer. One of the funniest words in the Bible. Those, these people ran around saying sooth. Uh, anyway, <laughs> or one who interprets omens, or it just for, it says a sorcerer, but for a moment there I read soccer player. But and, <laughs> this is a similar spelling. Not my fault. Anyway, or a sorcerer, one who conjures spells, or a medium, a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. Well, you want to pray to Mary? Then you're calling up the dead. Uh, don't try to play like you're not. Yeah, you say, well, she's in heaven. Yeah, but that's still classified as dead from this perspective. Uh, you can't say that about Christ because he's resurrected. Anyway, verse 12. For all who do these things are an abomination to Yahweh, and because of these abominations, Yahweh your God drives them out from before you. And so there you have a package given to the people saying, look, God doesn't want you messing with the spiritual realm. He is the only one in the spiritual realm you are allowed to address. And in case you don't get it, I'm going to list like 40, 11 different ones for you. I had a flavor for everybody. Well, of course, Saul, he becomes king and the hypocrite and, and narcissist that he was. 
Uh, he puts out all of the mediums and spiritists, but some laid low, kept a low profile, and continued to do business. Well, when Saul, when God wasn't answering Saul, what does he do? He sends to the witch at Endor. 1 Samuel 28. Then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium. Not a large, not a small, but a medium. <laughs> Somebody, they ought to fix that. <laughs> yeah. They're messing with the pastors reading these verses. Find me a woman who is a medium that I may go and inquire of her. <laughs> so, <clears throat> let's not get the giggles. And his servants said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium <laughs> and poor. So, they knew that there was somebody. Here's his staff, his cabinet. They know there are people breaking the law, and they're looking the other way. Uh, so it was all fine. It was what they wanted. Well, God didn't think that was fine. And, and of course, he dealt with Saul's very harsh words there. And I think it's uh, 1 Chronicles 10. Anyway, coming back to verse 10, verse 10 now of Isaiah 47. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. So knowledge and wisdom. Well, Daniel said knowledge will increase in the latter days, but he didn't say people would know to do the right thing with it. In fact, we know they're going to do the wrong thing with it if they have not this relationship with God. So they are possessed of natural knowledge, natural wisdom, which doesn't go far enough. And uh, they use these things to, perver to pervert their ways. Typical of fallen man, to suppose that some worldly success qualifies them for spiritual success. Well, you see this in athletes and actors, do you not? They think that because they have succeeded in, as an actor and entertainer, that therefore they also know politics, or they also know biology. And they don't. But they've got this, of course, this... Celebrity status. Typical of fallen men to suppose that surviving worldly opposition qualifies them to treat others poorly. That's arrogance. It says again, it repeats it, no one sees me. They thought they were, they felt we're not accountable. We don't have to answer for this. No one of any value sees this. And God says, I see it all. And I'm going to deal with this. Verse 11. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. And, of course, this began with Cyrus when he conquered the city. Very little resistance. Their prognosticators and stargazers did not see this coming. And it, it did happen. Uh, so, I guess... When is this going to happen to the liberal universities, which pretty much all of them, the entertainment world, the media, the government, when are they going to be dealt with? How long will the rich and powerful God-haters of the world get away with their crimes as allies with Satan? Well, we know. We know that it will have, they will continue to get away with it until Babylon has fallen in the end of the Great Tribulation period. Verse 12. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. So God's, the prophet mocks them. 
God mocking them through the prophet, uh, their inability to validate themselves as genuine religions uh, in truth. So essentially, God says, try to stop me with your chants and your whatever else, the sooth that you keep saying. Verse 13, you are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. So those who seek advice from everyone tend to end up with advice from no one. You say, well, what are you, what are you, where are you going, where are you coming from with that? Well, he says, you are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. For them as a kingdom, the councils were their Chaldeans, their shaman. They were the religious people that had taken over the culture. Nebuchadnezzar didn't care for them, tried to wipe them out. It wasn't for Daniel. So today, you have people that seek, that get into some difficult situation in life, and they have a multitude of counselors. They're asking everybody. They're desperate. And, and as a result of asking advice from everyone, they end up with help from no one. Warped knowledge comes from opposing God. Even if you say you're not, but you're mingling in things that do oppose God, you're opposing him. It's called leaven. Rather than throwing your money away on the shaman of today, the psychologists, the therapists, the psychiatrists, I could save you some money. Yeah, there's that relationship with God. He's the wonderful counselor. There's the washing and regeneration of the word from the pulpit and in your devotional time. There is the strength and the wisdom of good friends. And then there's two other items. Well, the same, same bullet line, but two options. If you're feeling depressed and struggling with something, country music can help you out. And if you don't like the country music, go with the blues. It will provide a cathartic moment for you to get past this stuff. Now, that's, of course, for the ones that can't, you know, the Bible's not working. What? Listen to a little country. Listen, you picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. There's ten hungry children and a crop in the field. Doesn't get any worse than that. And you stick around long enough, you look back at your life and say, boy, I remember I was going through some tough times. I was listening to a lot of country music then. And I came out of it. I don't listen anymore, but I'll always have that respect. So, um, you know, again, people have been dealing with depression and sad. So I, I just, I just thought, saw this thing, this person said their diet got them out of depression. Okay, I don't disagree. I'm not, yeah, that's science. You have a physical, uh, an additive that is coming in and affecting how you feel, how you behave. Uh, you know, rabies will do that. That comes from the outside. That will affect everything. So I understand. So that means the person that is struggling because of their diet, no therapist can help. No pill can help that. They change what they eat. So I'm just throwing these things out there. You can, you can uh, ask me later for the details if you want. I'm, I'm just telling you what I've come across because I don't think we Christians should excuse something when we hear it. We, we should get to the bottom, prove all things. Many false spirits have gone out into the world. And, uh, you know, as a pastor, you want to be ready for when some Christian comes up to you and says, oh, yeah, well, what about them finding alien beings? Well, I found those in cereal as a kid. What's... 
<laughs> so, you, you know, you got to have a scriptural answer for these things so you don't get caught flat-footed. And so I bring them up like this from time to time. Anyway, the occult, the supernatural, the paranormal, these were, these people were preoccupied with these things in ancient Babylon, so infested with uh, the occult, so soaked in it, that the term Chaldean became synonymous with Babylon. Why do we have two names for Babylon in the Bible? It's Babylon. But it's known as the, you know, Ur of the Chaldees for Abraham. Well, God said, get out of there. Get away from your father's people and your father. Get away from there. Well, it's because of the witchcraft that was going on there. The name, again, Chaldean, virtually synonymous with the Babylonian Empire because of all the astrologers, the stargazers, the prognosticators, the people that were doing, you know, sending curses on people and enchanting, uh, enchantments, and all the stuff that they were doing, trying to tap into the spiritual realm so they could have an upper hand on the physical realm trying to chart the stars and say, okay, this is your future, like horoscopes, and this is what kind of day you're going to have, because, you know, Mars is lined up with Jupiter or some nonsense. And it took over the people. And so if it weren't for the salt of the earth, do you not think that these leftists that are hating the country that has allowed them this luxurious lifestyles that they live, don't you think they would have already taken over? But you are the salt of the earth. The light of the world. And the only reason why America is not synonymous with the leftism is because of the Christian resistance or those conservative who resist because of a Christian influence, whether they want to admit that or not. Western civilization, modern Western civilization, is under the influence of the Bible. It doesn't mean they're saved, but it does mean that... Um, uh, the, the Christianity uh, took the lead away from the Caesars and Christ became a dominant figure. Well, verse 14, Behold, they shall be as stubble, the fire shall burn them, they shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame, it shall not be uh, a coal to be warmed by, nor fire to sit before. So the prophet says in the end you get burned. You do not... Uh, benefit from physical creation, you are judged by the God over physical creation. Verse 15, Thus they shall be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. So the fate of Babylon is sealed in heaven Ancient Babylon is gone. It has been 100% fulfilled. Nobody else has got this. Uh, you're not going to find these prophecies in Islamic writings. You're not going to find them in uh, Confucius, confused Confucius, you know, who comes up with corny lines that don't work. Uh, you know, if the thimble is upside down, it doesn't fit on the finger. Uh, what? <laughs> he hasn't said that, but some stuff like that. Anyway, uh, and you know, have you ever seen an interview with the Dalai Lama? <laughs> okay, the Dalai Lama. Look, the prophets mocked them because they're damning souls. 
And they need to be called out. And if, you, if you've ever seen an interview, you say, huh, Why does, I don't get it. Dennis the Menace is more entertaining than watching this stuff. Okay, I never liked Dennis the Menace. He, he needed a spanking. I'm sorry. He just, anyway, poor Mr. Wilson. Coming back to this, uh, almost done here. Um, Babylon becomes a representative of, of judgment that will befall like-minded, wicked people throughout history. Uh, ultimately, in the end of the Great Tribulation. So I'll close with this, Revelation 18.11, because in 15, in Isaiah 47.15, he mentions that um, they shall, thus they shall be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. So the entire system is going to implode under the warped knowledge and wisdom that they have coming out of demonic influences that they won't name as demonic. They'll name it as, you know, a channel guide or some silly thing. Remember, what was her name? Shirley MacLaine? You know, she's a channel channeling. Well, you know what that means? That you are a channel for a spiritual being that we know to be a demon. And just because the demon doesn't cut your throat doesn't mean he's your friend. And so they all say, you know, the voice changes, their mannerisms, their gestures change, as though this creature is speaking through them because it is. Well, judgments are coming. Revelation 18.11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Euphemistic prophecy, saying that the economy dies and were it not for the return of the Lord, so would everybody else. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the heads up using Babylon as a, uh, a lesson board for us to see that uh, there is an ancient Babylon that was prophesied against and the prophecies were fulfilled. Couple that with the New Testament revelation against mystery Babylon, the great harlot, and all of the tentacles of that Antichrist system. And there we have again a future prophecy that is unfolding before us so that we can be sure of your word and continue to preach the gospel and, Lord, hopefully be used by you to make converts. May you get us all home safely tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.